Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental unbuttoning of the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes and a touch of colourful language. It also contains a performance of an Irish accent that is so terrible as to almost warrant criminal proceedings. If this is likely to cause offence and or feelings of violence, please don't proceed any further. Bad girl, good behaviour. Inventing sex, becoming an icon and outraging everybody. With Mae West. If you're a new listener, let me just say a quick hello and welcome to the gallery. And to gin-soaked old rogues who've been with me for longer, thank you for sticking around and I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. Anyone who'd like to support me and what I do can by joining my Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes. Or by visiting the Rogues Gallery merch store, where, among many other stylish bargains, they can purchase a Bad Girl Good Behaviour t-shirt in honour of this week's episode. The link to that is also in the show notes, or you can visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com. Every penny goes back into the podcast and will really help in keeping the gallery open and telling the stories of its disgraceful characters for a long time to come. Don't let the Irish accent negatively influence your decision in offering any support, even though it really is shocking. Anyway, the following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I'm not a permanently offended 1930s moral zealot and uptight busybody, with an inability to say the word sex, those attitudes and opinions are obviously not mine. New York, February 1927. Well, I must say, that is the dirtiest play I have seen in a very long time. An affront to all decent, God-faring people. An abomination. They should lock them all up and throw away the key. It's called, excuse my language, sex. And it was written by a shameless floozy by the name of Mae West, who, if we don't stop her right now, will drag America and possibly the entire world into a rancid pit of vice and filth from which it may never claw itself free. It would be bad enough if it were a man peddling this depravity, but a woman? It goes against everything decent. Fortunately, a Christian jury of 12 upstanding men have quite rightly just sent her to jail. And if you ask me, it can't be for long enough. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. Miss West has been performing on the vaudeville circuit since she was 14, and you know what those girls are like. Her father was a prize fighter and private investigator, while her mother modelled corsets, so make of that what you will. May first started acting in the so-called cheap theatres of New York City, where the plays were usually full of lewdness and violence, and more often than not, based on some scandal that was in the newspapers at the time. Well, it was for the working classes after all. It was there that she learned that the best way to grab an audience's attention was by shocking them. So she behaved in a tough, aggressive and some might even say masculine manner. I mean really, a woman who isn't ladylike is hardly a woman at all in my book. 
This was before they got the vote, of course, which is where I think everything started to go wrong. Do you know that when she was performing in Connecticut in 1912, her outrageous behaviour on stage attracted a raucous crowd of Yale University students? Men, obviously, who used to run down the aisles shouting Bula Bula before she started her act. But then that's students for you. This upset so many people that she was fired. And it even made the news. The headlines read, Wiggles cost Mae West her job. Speaking of dancing, and I use the term loosely, her first real brush with infamy came six years later, in 1918. May liked spending her time in jazz clubs, if you know what I mean, in the company of men no respectable woman would ever associate with, and was quite brazen about it too, seeing nothing wrong in doing exactly as she pleased. I will not conform to the old-fashioned limits they set on a woman's freedom of action, she said. I see no indecency or perversion in the normal private habits of men and women. Well, what utter nonsense. It was in these clubs that, apart from developing a liking for ungodly fornication music, she learned how to perform a dance called the Shimmy Shah Wobble, which she brought to the Broadway stage. Now, imagine if you can a more depraved sight than a woman standing perfectly still while shaking her entire body to an accompaniment of obscene jazz music. It's like the last days of ancient Rome. They should make the shimmy illegal. I'm writing a letter. West not only encouraged outrage and scandal, but positively thrived on it, becoming even more famous as she did so. It's almost as if she was using the notoriety to publicise herself. But obviously, a girl like that can't have been so intelligent. Anyway, it must have worked, because by 1924, Mae West was a well-known, if controversial, stage performer. But while she was notorious for rewriting and ad-libbing most of her lines to make them even more amusing and bawdy, she had yet to write a full play. By all accounts, that changed when she saw a woman who was quite obviously a prostitute touting for business on the New York waterfront. She described her as having blonde hair, over-bleached and all frizzy, a lot of makeup on and a tight black satin coat that was all wrinkled and soiled, runs in her stockings and she had this little turban on and a big beautiful bird of paradise. West overheard her companions debating how much the woman would probably charge for each sexual encounter, deciding it would be somewhere between 50 cents and two dollars. She contemplated on just how many men she'd have to service every day just to pay the rent and grew angry not only at how the prostitute was being exploited by society, but also at how the harlot was allowing herself to be used by men rather than exploiting them herself. As if. So West began work on a story about a Canadian trollop who escapes a life of pleasuring sailors to find love with a man who knows about and forgives her sordid past. The kind of future she no doubt wished the girl on the docks would one day enjoy. And if that wasn't morally reprehensible enough, the play also showed police officers as sometimes being corrupt and wealthy members of polite society as being cruel hypocrites more concerned with their reputations than with the lives of others. Both of which are, of course, totally untrue. Naturally, no respectable backer would put their money into such a shameful enterprise, nor direct to oversee it, fear to host it or cast perform in it. So, over the next year or so, West did it all herself, obtaining finance from, it's rumoured, local gangsters, recruiting a director so desperate for work that he didn't even ask her to make the script less risque, 
finding an off-Broadway theatre that hosted experimental productions and hiring a young cast who were actively encouraged to improvise around their roles. It was going to be called The Albatross, but West changed the title to Thanks just before the opening night. Now obviously it's not the kind of thing I would ever pay money to go and see, but when I saw the poster advertising it as the story of a bad little girl who was good to the Navy, I knew I would be so disgusted and outraged that I just had to buy a ticket. The poster even had a warning written on it saying, if you cannot stand excitement, visit your doctor before seeing Mae West in sex. I'm surprised more people didn't take notice of it and stay away. The opening night was, I must say, sparsely attended and many people walked out in disgust. The reviews were of course appalling. We were shown not sex but lust, one reviewer wrote, stark naked lust. Another described it as, poor balderdash of street sweepings and cabaret sentimentality, unexpurgated in tone. Variety said it was a sink of moral turpitude. The Milwaukee Sentinel advised, fumigation needed. And no less a publication than Billboard said it was, poorly written, poorly acted, horribly staged. The cheapest, most vulgar low show to have dared to open in New York this year, and a disgrace to all those connected to it. So imagine my surprise when, once these reviews began to appear, crowds started flocking to the theatre to see what all the fuss was about. There were lines of people stretching all the way along 63rd Street. I simply don't know what was wrong with them. Anyone would think they found sex and scandal appealing. By the beginning of this year, 325,000 of them had seen this Sodom and Gomorrah of a play, which was being touted as a jazz age phenomenon. The Catholic Church, the Society for the Suppression of Vice and noted millionaire newspaper owner William Randolph Hearst were all publicly clamouring for it to be shut down. Hearst, by the way, is vehemently against immorality on the public stage and I consider rumours that he is currently enjoying an illicit affair with the actress Marion Davis to be just that. Otherwise he'd be the most unconscionable hypocrite. To make matters worse, West had opened yet another play while sex was still being performed. Entitled Drag, it was even more shocking, if that's possible, in that it featured unabashed homosexuality and the recreation of a drag queen's ball while at the same time mocking those who condemn the lifestyle as immoral. Do you know, I could almost feel the bowels of hell opening up beneath me. Thank the Lord then for acting New York Mayor Joseph V. McKee, sometimes known as Holy Joe for his God-fearing morality. He took advantage of the actual Mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker, who had much looser morals, going on holiday to Havana to order that X, along with several other theatre performances he considered to be obscene, be raided by the police. As they waited outside to arrest her, anybody would think that Miss West was looking forward to all the controversy, as if she knew that at the, frankly over the hill age of 33, her moral laxitude may one day make her a star. Shameful. It's said that after her performance, she naturally played the lead role of prostitute Margie Lamont, Miss West retired to her dressing room to prepare for her big moment of being led away by the police. Variety, I believe, said that West played a fallen woman so convincingly that she could fool a travelling salesman's convention. But I don't know what that means. 
Dressed in her best furs, she was led through the gawping crowds and, along with her entire cast, bundled into the back of waiting taxis to be ferried to a police station in Hell's Kitchen. Once there, she was charged with unlawfully preparing, advertising, giving, presenting and participating in an obscene, immoral and impure drama, play, exhibition, show and entertainment. I would have added moral genocide to the list myself. If found guilty, she could have faced a year in jail, but was told that all charges would be dropped if she closed the play. West, however, refused and positively demanded that she be tried before a jury. Then she bailed out not only herself, at a cost of $1,000, but also her entire cast before preparing for her day in court. I asked myself what possible good could come from the lurid press attention the trial would create. West would be on the front page of every newspaper in the country, with her shame laid bare for all the world to see. I can only hope that at her trial she will feel the full weight of the law pressing down on top of her. New York, April 1927. I have to say that that was one of the dirtiest trials I have seen in a very long time. Miss West, of course, was being charged with performing in a play which was obscene, immoral and impure. The court, however, were told that there was no nudity or obscene language in the play, so it was the task of Vice Quad Detective Sergeant Patrick Kennelly to prove to the jury just how filthy it actually was. In his lilting Irish brogue, Sergeant Kennelly described certain scenes from the play, including one in which Miss West engages in a particularly lascivious dance. In this episode, the prostitute dances before the sailors of the fleet and the officers in a way that causes Ensign Jones, the same character who had solicited Margie Lamont to commit an act of prostitution with him, to say, you'd make a bulldog break its chain. The said dance having been performed by the defendant Mae West by moving her buttocks and other parts of her body in a way as to suggest an act of sexual intercourse. When asked to demonstrate by the defence Miss West's movement to the court, a visibly distressed Sergeant Kennelly declined. The prosecution excused this decision by reminding the jury that everyone in the police force is not a dancer. The defence's reply of, nor an actor, alluding to his delivery of the plot, was met with much laughter from the assembled audience, which I found most infuriating. Sergeant Kennelly was asked if he had glimpsed Miss West's navel during this wanton display, Kennelly replied that he had not, but had seen something in her middle that moved from east to west, which got even more laughter. I nearly exploded with fury. All the while, Miss West sat casually rouging her lips, as if this was all part of the show. Does she have no shame? When she was finally found guilty and sentenced to ten days at a women's workhouse, she simply smiled and sashayed across the courtroom. I heard her say, give my regards to Broadway, to reporters who were clustering around the proceedings like jackals. <laughs> I'd like to see how brazen she is in 10 days time. I don't believe it. She's been released two days early. I heard that she told a reporter it was the first time I ever got anything for good behaviour. What's worse, her performance in the courtroom and the damning descriptions of her morally corrupting play have made her even more famous than before. Prison warden Henry Schleth said that she even dined with him and his wife and that she was a woman of wonderful character. 
West went on to say that she spent her entire time in jail wearing silk underwear, and then donated her entire $1,000 interview fee to establish a Mae West Memorial Library for female prisoners. They say she's now considering working on another play, entitled Diamond Lil, about a wealthy harlot who is the mistress of a gang boss. Now, I have no doubt that this will be roundly ignored. I mean, who wants to watch a play about bawdy sex and organised crime? And I hope that any aspirations the woman may have for one day furthering her career in Hollywood will come to naught. You take it from me. If Mae West becomes a global icon and the highest paid woman in America, I'll eat my Bible. My play, Kittens Take Tea with Grandma, is opening next week. I think you'll find that that's what the public wants. There's at least one more episode needed to fully tell the remarkable tale of Mae West, as she's yet to achieve Hollywood greatness yet. Listeners in the UK may have noticed that I began this tale by paraphrasing the legendary moral campaigner Mary Whitehouse, who was famous in the 1960s and 70s in England for pontificating all the time about moral laxity in films and television. In 1964, she got in touch with the BBC to complain, I watched a TV show at 6.35pm last Thursday, and it was the dirtiest programme that I have seen for a very long time. The programme in question was a comedy sketch show called Between the Lines, starring a very young Tom Conti. The bit Mrs Whitehouse was so appalled by was a sketch about infidelity. Now Mary Whitehouse went on a lot, but didn't seem to achieve very much at all, and I've no doubt what Mae West would have thought of her and the rest of the Ban This Filth Brigade. It's interesting to note though, and has often been pointed out by various commentators over the last few years, that in the relatively recent past, all the morally superior killjoys were middle-aged religious conservatives like Mary Whitehouse, whereas nowadays it's 20-something liberal students who are in a permanent state of po-faced offence. Is that a fair observation, or are those commentators missing a point? Anyway, I seriously doubt if Mae West would have felt too much pressure from modern-day moral crusaders. She was a strong, independent woman who celebrated her sexuality, and was, by the standards of the 30s and 40s, extraordinarily progressive, in the best possible sense. A story to illustrate this involves a famous boxer, William Landon Jones, known as Gorilla Jones, on account of his extremely long reach in the ring. You'd have to stand 76 inches away from him to avoid being punched. Jones was famous not only for his incredible ability, but also for his attitude. He was a real gentle man, who didn't like hurting his opponents and was described by one newspaper as as classy a piece of fighting machinery as the game has known. He was also an enthusiastic spender, and the big bucks rarely stayed in his possession for very long. He met Mae West in a nightclub in 1928, and as her father had been a prize fighter, she began to bankroll his career. Over time, they became very close, and when he expressed a desire to leave the sport, she employed him as her chauffeur and bodyguard. She also put his mum on the payroll as a wardrobe assistant. Needless to say, their relationship was not always platonic although Jones never publicly admitted to being one of Mae West's lovers. She once told a reporter, though, that during one long and particularly energetic night, she had given him 17 orgasms. When asked how she could be so sure it was 17, West replied, Because every time he came, 
I put a mark on the wall. Jones always referred to West as the lady and once threatened to punch somebody who was heckling her on stage straight in the face. May's reply was to let the guy heckle as it was good for business. Jones, though, was African-American, which in the 30s and 40s meant that he and West had to put up with their fair share of bigotry, an attitude that Mae West had little time for. When the managers of her apartment block tried to stop Jones from visiting her on account of his race, she simply bought the building outright, sacked the management team and announced that everyone was welcome. What modern Hollywood would have made of somebody so outspoken, unafraid and controversial as Mae West we can only speculate. She did make her film debut aged 40 though, which gives plenty of hope to mature rogues everywhere. There are loads more stories, but I'll save those for a future episode. I will, however, leave the last word to Miss West. Between, I won't do the voice, between two evils, I like to pick the one I haven't tried before, which is as good a maxim for life as any I've heard. Next time on Rogues Gallery Uncovered. Dual personality. A ringside seat at the sword match of the 18th century with Restoration England's most obnoxious duelist, Charles Moen. And this time, it's personal. Rogues Gallery Uncovered is growing nicely thanks to lovable rogues like you and it's great to see the numbers climb. However, numbers are pretty sterile. Apart, of course, from 69, which is hilarious. And one thing that I'd really like is to have much more interaction with the people who listen to the podcast. But the question is, how? I am on social media at Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, but are there any other ways that you'd like to stay in touch with me and fellow rogues? If I set up a private Discord server, would that be something of interest? Would you use it? I'm a tech-ignorant Luddite, but I'll happily set one up if it means we can get a little roguish community growing. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions at ways that we can get some conversations started? Because I'd love to hear them. You can get directly in touch with me via email at simon at roguesgalleryonline.com. The address is, of course, in the show notes. Or by visiting roguesgalleryuncovered.com and signing up for the newsletter. Loads of you have done that in the last three months, and it's a great way to stay abreast of decadent developments. Anyway, let me know what you like, what you don't, what you read who you'd like to hear featured, what your favourite naughty historical anecdote is, what accent you'd like me to do next, and any other miscellany that you feel like sharing. Have a great week, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>